Hey guys, it's Keith. This week's episode is a continuation of a story that started last week. So if you haven't heard last week's episode, that's episode 12 of season three. You're going to want to go back to that one and listen to it first. And after you've done that, you can come back to this one and see how the story ends. Hope you enjoy it. Let's start the music. Hi, and welcome to The Volume Knob, where we tell the stories about the songs that saved your life. This week, part two of David and the Origin of Love. Hey friends, so when we last left David, he was locked almost in his living room with Bob, the home nurse who was charged with giving him Remicade, a treatment that would combat David's Crohn's disease, but which had a side effect of deeply suppressing David's immune system. The interesting twist, of course, is that Bob didn't believe in vaccines or in masks. And I say, well, what do you mean? You're a nurse. You haven't gotten the vaccine. He's like, no, no, it, 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 it's, it's not proven and it might alter you. He did, however, love musicals. What I didn't mention last week is that David hates musicals. It's not my it's not one of my obviously gay traits. I don't like when people sing their feelings, break out into song. There's very few musicals I like or connect with. There has to be some sort of contextualization for like it's a show. Like that makes sense to me, you know? But when people are just at a grocery store, you know, how much is the veal? Like I don't it doesn't do anything for me. My husband, the minute he heard this, he started a thread with me and my two sister-in-laws who live in LA, being like, you'll never believe what kind of torture Davey is experiencing in our house right now. My husband loves musicals. His family loves musicals. They're on a text laughing about how I am in this position. I find myself engaging with Bob over this because that's what, that's what I have. Even if it's that I hate it, I can keep that I hate it to myself, but I know it. So I'm like, well, what do you like? And boy, does he express it to me. He talks to me about his favorite musical. His favorite musical ever was Carrie, based on the horror film. And he shows me videos of it. And at this point, now I have his iPad in my face, full volume people bleeding their feelings from his iPad at me. And it's almost like the insult to injury at this point. Like, my life might very well be in danger. And now, I'm, women are screaming their feelings from, like, a Broadway stage in my face. It's so intense. He tells me that he's seen Cats on Broadway 27 times in his life. And then he says, you know, you like musicals too, huh? And I just say, oh, I like Hedwig. When the earth was still flat And clouds made of fire Stretched up to the sky, sometimes I... And he lights up. He says, I love Hedwig. Now, if you don't know about Hedwig and the Angry Inch, 
It was this amazing solo show in New York. It was a musical. It's very edgy, very rock and roll. One of those musicals I like because there's a contextualization for the music. It's actually someone performing on stage as a musician, as a singer in, in much of the musical. My favorite is The Origin of Love. And Bob lights up because he's like, that's my favorite too. Now, if you don't know the song, The Origin of Love, it's basically based on uh, the writings of Plato. And it's this theory that at one point, a very long time ago, every human being had four arms, four legs, a face on either side of their head. They were essentially a pair. And they roamed the earth this way. Some of them were two men, some were two women. Most of them were a man and a woman. And then... Legend goes, Zeus got mad one day, he threw down lightning bolts, he split them all in half, flooded them all so they got lost all around the world. And then the beauty of the song is about how that's the human condition. We're all looking literally for our other half, in not just that figurative way, but we're physically looking for the person we're lost from. And that's, and the song is just this beautiful notion that like we're all drawn to wanting to connect with people and be compassionate because they might be that other part. Like we might feel that spark. And as Bob and I talk about the song, he gets teary and I have this sudden crazy feeling where I'm like, this is the sweetest thing that we're having this moment because like intellectually, you've just pissed me off so much. And then he takes out his phone and he's like, I think he can tell we're both emotional. And he takes out his phone and he's like, you know, for years on the East Coast, I worked with teenagers in this halfway house. And there's this clip of one of them singing the song. I want to show it to you. And I know that this is five or six years ago because he tells me. And then I think, wow, he has this video still on his phone to this day and he plays it and it's this little classroom with some sort of disheveled looking teenagers and this kid stands up and sings the song and it's heartbreaking and as bob holds the phone to me i look over his mask and he's like weeping <laughs> like hearing this person sing this song and i think it just got me thinking like i gotta give Bob a chance because I don't have anyone else to do this thing that A, I need selfishly, but also maybe this will be an amazing platform for me to experiment with what does it mean in this really politically charged time to have to try to connect with someone. David's desire to connect wasn't the only reason he wanted to give Bob a chance. He realized he was genuinely afraid of the consequences of asking for a change. So that day Bob left, my husband was irate, and I could tell when I expressed to him a little bit of sympathy or compassion that he was really kind of confused, and that was when it really struck me that I really needed Bob, like I, I needed him. I couldn't afford to not have him. And I called the place after, and she heard me out, but then she said, you know, so you want us to get you another nurse, or I could report, and then all of a sudden I just started thinking of how I might have already developed antibodies. Like I'm gonna, I'm about to find out if the treatment even works because it was so hard to make it happen. What will it happen if I lose Bob and they have to get another nurse? And then they're like, it's three more months. And I said, no, I, I have to accept this, right? 
What followed was a strange kind of detente. David and Bob could get along as long as they focused on the right conversations. Like talking about sports with your racist uncle around the Thanksgiving table. I learned that Bob loved animals. He had 26 spiders at home, five snakes that were like boa constrictor level size snakes, and a beautiful bird that he loved more than anything. I should mention here that Bob lived alone and was single, you know, spoiler alert. When Bob would talk to me about his animals, it was this other moment where he would kind of get really emotional. Like he would show me them on his phone and get almost like a little like tearful at talking about their colors and their beauty and their names. We would connect, but there was always this moment where we would step our toes into like that insurrection, huh? Well, I mean, that just was people doing their own thing. Like Trump didn't invite them there. He didn't make that happen. Anyway, do you have any new spiders? Like that was kind of the rhythm of our connection. That uneasy truce held until one day Bob brought it literally crashing down. And I remember as he left, he walked to his car and I away from the porch uh, of my house. And I just said, you know, have a great day. And I just kind of felt like, oh, this is getting somewhere, this level of compassion that I'm having to maintain to be with him. And as I thought this, he proceeded to put his truck in reverse back up our driveway and roll over our entire outdoor seating area of furniture. His giant truck rolled over our couch, smashing it, wood literally exploding, pieces up into the air. The couch then was like a domino effect where it was slanted under his truck, bashed into the table next to it, sent it falling over. And as this is happening, it's almost like slow motion. He's slowly backing up and I'm screaming, Bob! And from the booming coming inside his truck, of probably a song from fucking cats, he can't hear me screaming. And then I run to his truck. My husband comes out because he hears me screaming and Bob gets out and he looks and it's just like his truck is on top of like our furniture and just symbolically. This was furniture that is technically indoor furniture that we moved outside because it's the only way we can see people safely. And it was destroyed. And Bob is looking at it and I'm thinking, you're such a mess in my head. You're such a fucking mess. You, you, you not just figuratively have these destructive, terrible views. You literally are destroying my life, my things. But I was filled with this anxiety. I could tell my husband wanted to talk to him and, and Bob was asking, well, how much was this? And I was just blathering out, like almost trying not to cry. Like, it's fine, it's fine, it's just go, it's go. We'll figure it out. Because I could tell what was really triggered in me was, I can't lose you. I can't ask for what's rightfully mine because you just destroyed our stuff because I, I'm so scared that I'm not gonna get my treatment and that I'm not gonna have you in my life. And as he drove away, Jack was like, why did you do that? And I said, and, I, and I, I really just spun out. It made me feel so small and vulnerable and really like victimized by this guy. And I was thinking that whole day, like I, I've got to get this guy out of my life. And then the next morning I wake up and he has sent me a thousand dollars. And I respond, Bob, you, you don't have to do this. Please don't do this. And he's like, no, this is what I have to do. I destroyed your furniture. Here are some links to outdoor uh, uh, couches I really like. Here's one I bought. And he just 
with so much kindness undoes everything I felt the day before. And then I reset with Bob. I reset all over again. It's all, it's all undone. And that's the inspiring part of the story of David and Bob in a nutshell. This idea that we can sometimes find common ground through mutual compassion and a willingness to set our grievances aside. The end of the story, though, speaks to a different kind of conflict and the point at which compassion really can't build a bridge. And for all the ways that I found compassion for Bob, I never really asked Bob point blank, what do you believe? You know, Jack and I would joke in this sort of really, in this almost dismissive, dare I say elitist way about like, he's probably on the QAnon boards, right? He's probably, you know, no telling what he thinks about those 4chan pages he's on, right? Like he's on 10 Reddit groups talking about how Hillary Clinton's a lizard, you know? And we would laugh about it, but I thought I've never really asked him. I've never really said. So one day I'm sitting there, he has me ported. We've got a few hours ago. I'm like, Bob, why don't you, why don't you get the vaccine? And he looks at me and he's sort of talking about a few things. I'm like, well, is it really this, you know, people talk about Bill Gates. And I say it out the side of my face, rolling my eyes. Like it's, he's not going to talk about the Bill Gates nanotechnology, you know, nanotechnology, whatever. And his face lights up and he leans in. And then it all starts to come out like all the crazy conspiracy theories about the nanotechnology and the vaccine and the way it alters your DNA and the way that Bill Gates actually believes if you like dig deep on the internet and find this speech, he believes in like finding a way to like cut down the population. And I'm nodding my head, we somehow get on on Trump and I'm like, you know, yeah, and I kind of roll my eyes and he's like, why don't you like him? And it like, it just triggers me. I'm like, why don't I like him? David said he surprised himself a little with what happened next. He sort of went on a rant, kind of a litany of the greatest hits of everything that made him angry about the Trump presidency, Stormy Daniels, Charlottesville, the president's statements about immigrants and mocking of the disabled. The conversation stuck worst, though, on what David saw as the Republican Party's support for conversion therapy, the pseudoscientific idea that gay people can be turned straight. Conversion therapy is illegal in several countries, but not in the U.S. And I'm doing a thing I've never done with Bob. Is, is I am just showing him all those things that I've been wanting him to show me. That I, I thought I was being so clever, like, I'm just going to get a little bit out. But I'm the one that explodes. And then he says... Well, sorry, but like, I hear all that, but I mean, what did Trump really do bad? Because quite frankly, gay marriage equality isn't really a very important right. And I like hear it and it's just like, I mean, he's literally in the house of me and my husband. And then he talks about George Floyd. We get there and he talks about the officer that killed him. And he says, you know, it really, it's not that officer's fault. It's the people that recorded it that got him in trouble. They killed George Floyd. I'm like freaking out. And I'm thinking about my nephew who's half black. And I'm thinking about like, 
my friends who were black and I'm thinking like, how do you get to a place where you take the blame off a white officer for killing a black man by blaming the non-racist people trying to help by documenting it to report him. And it was this real breakthrough moment for me where I was like, oh no, like what I'm trying here is never ever gonna work. And the irony wasn't lost on me that like, Bob's coming to my house to fill me with poison. Like quite literally. Bob comes to my house to stick a needle in my arm and fill me with something to destroy my immune system. And there are times when you get Remicade where you, you feel really sick afterwards. And I have felt so sick afterwards. And I'm literally thinking as I'm getting this treatment and I'm running out of avenues to go down. Like there's no spiders to talk about or, or, or fun musical moments or I, I, want, I, I want it to be done and I want him to be out. And I think of how sick I feel. Like I'm curled up on my couch sleeping for like 24, 48 hours when he leaves. And I know that it's the medicine, but I'm also sort of thinking like, is it Bob? But as I'm thinking about all this, Bob starts to try and like correct or like get us back to zero. Like he senses it too. And, and, and there's never shouting or screaming. I'm probably louder or more shouty than Bob, if I'm being honest. And he's like, it really makes me think of this song from one of my favorite musicals, Cabaret. But gather together to greet the storm Tomorrow belongs to me and now Cabaret is actually on my list of other musicals I love. Why? Because it's not people breaking into song about what they're having for dinner. There's a context, there's a stage, it is a presentation and a performance. And Bob pulls up his iPad and he's like, there's this moment that I really, really love from it. And it's all of these, you know, um, German people and they're having kind of lunch outside at a park. And as they're eating, this young, fresh-faced Nazi boy soldier stands up. And he starts singing this song, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. And the lyrics are, are basically about the fatherland and loving the place you're at and how the children are going to be sort of entering to this new bright world. Tomorrow belongs to me. The world is mine. Tomorrow belongs to me. If you haven't seen Cabaret, it's worth a look. What starts as a quiet, hopeful folk song soon turns into a military march and all of the folks who are sitting around in the park enjoying their lunch start to follow in behind the young Nazi as he speaks about his bright new future. I'm thinking about what Bob has said about the media and the way the powers that be try to pull us apart. And as all these people stand up with this sort of Nazi fervor, I'm like, God, maybe Bob and I are on the s same page. He, he gets this. And then as the scene comes to a close, this crazy thing hits me. That Bob isn't showing me this to say like, see, we're on the same side. We've got to watch out for this. He's showing this to me because I'm the Nazi. Bob is showing this to me as a way to make me understand how he feels with people with my mentality, people that trust the media, 
people that believe in the vaccine and what the news is telling them, people that aren't on the 4chan pages and the Reddit threads and the conspiracy theories. And I don't say anything because I just look at him like gazing into the screen as this like Nazi hopeful sings. And he's got those like tears in his eyes. They're the same really impassioned tears he had when he showed me the clip of the young people he worked with or when we watched the clip from Hedwig. But they're emotional because he's thinking about how sad and heartbroken he is that people like me are rising up and stifling people like him when all I'm looking at as I see these Nazis stand up is Bob (laughs) and then the scene ends and I just really try to like go back to zero and I try to be nice I try to just smile and I just want him out of the house and I know he's never coming back to my house like before he's left it felt in a really immediate way over for me I thought when this treatment is over we're done that's the poison like that was that was how I was poisoning myself is just allowing someone to come into my home and say these things that were so offensive because I thought I didn't have the power to change them and that if I said no you can't come you can't come into my house and say these things that I somehow wasn't compassionate I think I was maybe one of the most compassionate people that Bob has had in his life for eight months. And he wraps up all his gear. And as he does, I'm just fuming behind like this really plastic smile. And I'm thinking about my gay marriage. I'm thinking about my, you know, friends of color and my black nephew and anti-vaxxers. I I mean, I'm just going through the whole thing and I'm smiling. I'm just waving, hoping he doesn't crush any more furniture. And he gets in his truck and he leaves. And he sent me texts to follow up. He even said, hey, I'm really glad that we could talk today. I never feel like it's a fight. And what I really thought in my heart was, it hasn't felt like a fight because I need you. I call the insurance company and I think, what if I can make up something? And I say, hey, uh, I know that you don't want to do this unless we're at a facility. And I know that you also won't pay for a hospital. But we're moving just due to the pandemic. I, I make I, I make something up. I say, you know, if we have to sublet our place. And they're like, oh, do you want to go to our infusion center? And I say, what? And they're like, yeah, let me look up your address. Oh, there's an infusion center seven minutes down the street from where you live. If you want to just take all your drugs there, you could just go there and have the nursing team there give you your infusion. And I say, for this time? And they're like, oh no, you, you've always been able to do this. So I bite my tongue because again, what I want to do is say, no one thought eight months ago to offer this as an option, but I bite my tongue because you just have to cross your fingers, don't ruffle any feathers, hope it works. And a few days ago, I went to the infusion center with my $19,000 styrofoam cooler. I was given a little room, there was a curtain across the door, a very sweet nurse hooked me up to an IV drip, and I almost cried for the first hour just getting my, my, my treatment 
this way. There was a small technical screw-up at the beginning of the infusion process. The nurse forgot to turn on one of the machines, so David sat for about an hour without any of the Remicade going into his system. They apologized profusely. They brought me a Rice Krispie treat and a box juice. And they were so embarrassed. Literally ten times more embarrassed than Bob ever was. And it almost made me cry. And the nurses could tell I was really emotional. And I think they thought I was mad at them because I would have to stay for another hour and a half. But I was just so happy under my blanket, on my recliner, to have my Rice Krispie treat. And they reset the machine. And I got my treatment. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of the way music makes us feel. It's produced by Sublimate Audio and it's hosted, produced, edited, and written by me, the podcast producer who also hates musicals. My name is Keith Sari. As always, you can find out more about David using the show notes on the Volume Knob website, which is www.volumenob.net. This week's show notes will not only include links to other things David has made, like his memoir, Bad Kid, about growing up in Texas as a gay goth child. I'll also include a link to that scene from Cabaret. It's chilling stuff. While you're on the website, be sure to sign up for the Volume Knob mailing list. And finally, as promised, my thanks to both Kate and Miles for their 30-second reviews of The Origin of Love and Tomorrow Belongs to Me. So the first one was The Origin of Love, and I felt like there was maybe a little disagreement between the two of you on that. Oh yeah, I just thought it was so boring, and it's so long for a song that is so uneventful that you kind of question why you're even listening to it. I wonder how many people Kate must have offended during this series of this. No, it's just, it's just, it may just not be a song for me, but um, I just, I don't like I'm it. I'm going to criminally insult it anyways. What did you think? I, I think, I think it was good. I think it was perfectly fine. What I, I do agree with Kate that it does drag on a little bit, but it's, aside from that, it's pretty good. So the second one, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, Katie? It was even worse. I mean, um, it, it also sounded like a cock on the head, as well as the fact that it just, it felt as if they had given up. Like, you know when you're in a battle, and then you're like, oh, you know, I don't want to fight anymore. Yeah, I think I'm just going to give up. It sounded like they were doing that, but with their music career. It also sounded like an outdated Christmas song that your mother would play um, while you were wearing those ugly sweaters that were really itchy that your grandma sent you. It just, it didn't feel like the right vibe. It's very detailed. Miles, <laughs> what do you think? Um, I couldn't understand 60% of the lyrics because it's, they focus on the lyrics being loud rather than the lyrics being comprehensible. Also, the song sounds militaristic in a way that I am uncomfortable with. That's my take. 
nothing about Grandma's Christmas sweaters here. Thanks again for downloading, and be sure to listen again next week for more stories about the songs that saved your life.